Hey, Joel, can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're coming through great. How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm well. Um, I've missed out on banter at the beginning of these things. So okay. now as a rule, it's already recording. I just wanted to let you know it's already going. But okay, I had one great. group of like uh, five or six folks on. And for like 10 minutes, they were just quipping and having an album. It's like, you're you're killing me. Can I hit record? Can I just? So I just <laughs> learned now. Like it gives you that option to start recording as soon as you start the video. And right. uh, I, I've now taken advantage of that. So I like to let everyone know now as soon as you come on. Like, hey, man, you're live. It's going. If uh, actually, it happened, told me it told me it was being recorded as okay. soon as the, the room opened. So wonderful. Glad to hear. I wanted to make sure because as much as I would like to trust technology, I mean, who do you trust? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to I was going to be careful. Yeah. It, it helped. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, thank you for having me. This is uh, this is cool. Yeah. Hey, um, I want to take a moment because we'll get back to him. But uh, none of this would have probably started if not for a mutual associate of ours, Mr. Carl Slominski, yeah. who, uh, who let me know about your project. And then unfortunately, as freelancers life goes, I got so swept up in a project that by the time I, I got the chance to catch up, you had already funded. You, you went through Forever Winter was official. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I mean, I think uh, I think it already funded and uh, been delivered. <laughs> by the time yeah. you reached out, <laughs> yeah. so, which is very that, uncommon that, for Kickstarters. But uh, yeah, Carl, uh, that was one of the biggest mistakes I made is I didn't line up any like interviews or, or anything like that when I was promoting until like I was halfway through my campaign mm. and Carl reached out to a bunch of people to, to try to help get the word out. Cause he's a, uh, he's a very good friend to me. <laughs> You know, he's uh, very supportive of me and Forever Winter. He's believed in Forever Winter longer than anyone probably should have. <laughs> uh, so I'm very well, grateful he, to have him in my corner. Yeah, and with good reason. I mean, clearly the man is really comfortable just not only sharing the message of the work he's doing, but of projects he believes in. When he meets someone who's doing something that he, you know, supports, he's not ashamed to let you know, like, hey, this is good. I'm backing it. Here's why you should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to start out with uh, the simple fact that when I did get a chance to look over Forever Winter, I was totally caught up with the idea. And I thought it would be a fun way to sort of start. And then we can sort of wrap around to some other, uh, I think, fun topics, which I think should make it interesting. Tell me about Forever Winter, because the first thing I noticed was the intro from Carl and the date on it, which was 2011. Yeah. Uh, should my audio be going through my headphones or through my computer? Um, it, we... it should be fine. The system should be, should be fine. I'm hearing you. Yeah. Anytime I can hear you, I usually have good recording quality. So I feel confident. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I just don't want you picking up yourself, but okay. Yeah. No problem. All right. Um, um, yeah. Uh, Forever Winter, I started it. Actually, I started developing it in Cubit school. I went to the Cubit school from 2003 to 2006 and I launched it as a web comic after graduation. Okay. And I think 2007. And um, I just realized at a certain point that I wasn't, I had planned so much stuff further down the line that I wanted to get to sooner. 
and a lot of my influence changed in that time. I mean, 21 versus, you know, later, later 20s. And I was just influenced by a lot of different things. So I actually started over in, I think, 2009. And the first issue came out at Small Press Expo in 2011. So it, it's been a, a long, long journey to get to this collected version that is out in the world now. It's quite an evolution. Um, Absolutely. You know, was there one significant change that you noticed when you were you know, going through that uh, revision process in 2000 or leading up to 2009? Or was it a, a culmination of you know, many parts, but coming up to a sum? There was... It was a big part of it was uh, so a lot of the first pages were done in school. So mid, you know, 2006, I had improved vastly by the time I got to like 2009. I was like, wow, this stuff really isn't aging as well as I would have liked. I really, I mean, I always say that when I left Hubert school, I left with a certain set of tools, but I still had to keep developing my style and, and working on it. So I just said, I gotta, I gotta go back because the beginning of this story isn't going to look how I want it to look and just keeping uh, developing certain things. I it just needed a major, major rewrite for pacing and, and all sorts of stuff. And so I bit the bullet and I was like, I, you just have to do it. You have to go back and, and start over. It's that process of revision. I mean, once you start looking at something and you've gone to a certain point, you look back, you know, you, you're going to ask yourself those questions. Does, does what I'm doing now match up with everything that I've done? Or do I need to reflect the changes I'm making presently in what's preceded it? You know, how good is yeah. that flow? You know, and then later you're probably going to read it through a couple of times through and it's like, okay, because for me, I come at everything as a writer. I, I'm a freelancer. I, I do some kids' comic scripts. But everything about what I'm doing is basically uh, falling into a series of processes. And one is the creating, and then two is the refining and the revising. And then, of course, there's the other steps after. But it seems like that revising, you can do 10 or 20, 30. I've got a short story. I can honestly, I, I tell, would tell students, I'm like, yeah, I got about 46 revisions on that thing. And they're like, you can see their hearts breaking. They're like, I don't want to write anything 46 times. That sounds like yeah. punishment. <laughs> But Absolutely. at the same time, if you know what you want it to be, it's it's work that you're willing to do. You know, you can imagine anyone passionate about something. If they care about how it's going to look at the end, that's that's going to be something of a uh, a spurring of your efforts. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and you have to be kind of unprecious, I guess, with with your thing. You have to be willing to kind of blow it up to to make it better. And I, you know, that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know that everyone gets really sensitive around that phrase, kill your darlings. And, you know, so much has been said about it. But at the same time, it's about what are you emotionally attached to and what actually works for what you're doing? And if you can split that line, if you can be honest with yourself about, well, I really love the way that sounds. Yeah, it's great. It's beautiful. Snip it out. Put it on a, a T-shirt somewhere. But in the meantime, does it work for the story you're telling? And if it doesn't, man, that's a hard let go. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> you might find yourself 20 years later. What might have been? Uh, 
So <laughs> here's the part that I'm interested in as well, because if we're going to talk about revision, I, I enjoy the idea that that allows us to open up everything about the process. And I'm curious when it comes to you, your name's all over this book. You're the writer. You're the illustrator. When I looked at that idea, I wondered for you, which comes first? Is there like a, because uh, talking with an artist about character creation, I feel it starts different for everyone. It can come with an idea. It can come with a look. For him, it was about fashion and about body shapes and like taking something you don't expect and putting it in an expected environment. And what I found interesting was considering, well, for you, do stories begin visually or do they begin with uh, a language, a sentence, an idea that becomes something developed through writing first? I think um, I think for me, I've always said that I'm, I'm an artist first. Uh, I'm an artist who draw. Uh, I'm an artist who writes. I'm not uh, a writer who draws. So, well, there's definitely been times where like a line of dialogue or something will will spark how I see a scene. But for me, it is mostly visual. It's it's, um, you know, the way the characters are standing or, or the setting or, or those types of things are what really kind of get my my creative you know, flowing, so to speak. Um, but, you know, it all depends. This book's almost 300 pages. So there's definitely a little <laughs> bit of, of everything where, you know, uh, with a dialogue scene, it's, it might be the back and forth between the characters is what really like gets me excited to, to do it. Understood. Yeah. I, I, I'm torn sometimes. Well, I'll be working on a script and it's a, it's a, kids script uh, is one that I do the most often right now. So I'm, I'm usually trying to think of if the story or the vision works out better for me as I'm telling it. And in many occasions, I'll get caught up in the dialogue between my characters and that will guide my panels, at least for the first like six to eight. And then I'll know that I want that to come to a visual. I'll put it in a description, but oftentimes I'll find myself leading with one or the other. Sometimes it's lovely. I can write the dialogue and I can see the picture that I can do but other times I'm like, look, if I can't picture it right now, keep the dialogue going, come back through and imagine that image that works with the dialogue and, and tells your story as you're moving it forward. Right, right. So it's interesting to hear your process, you know, with this idea of, yeah, it can be one. But then when I'm looking at a 300 page book, I'm, I'm going to be caught up in those parts that make the story compelling and also give the story the, the bones that, that you then sort of, you know, add this art to. Um, post-apocalyptic future usually yep. it's something that that comes when we look into the future and don't see the best possibilities ahead of us um at 21 i was definitely not seeing a lot of great possibilities actually i think it was probably like by the time i was like 10 my my father had a very <laughs> common phrase for my sister and i which would embarrass him when we would repeat it as adults but he would say life is hard and then you die and that's the story. And it was, yeah. uh, it was a harsh reality, but it shaped my vision. By the time I was in my 20s, I was like, what? It's, look, are you kidding me? Want me to tell you how bad it's going to get? This is wrong. This is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. can imagine that that vision for you was, was very specific. Did it, did it come from a visual? Did it come from a line of dialogue? Is it kind of like T2 with the, you know, Linda Hamilton on the playground and everything burns in fire? What was your sort of... Uh, this is Forever Winter for you or where it launched from? Forever Winter seemed much more like science fiction 16 years ago. It's, uh, the world is a much scarier place today than uh, <laughs> I think I ever intended. I didn't, uh, 
Are you creating our reality? I just want to know. Are you creating our reality? It's just all part of a plan. I am Joel Stradamus. (laughs) I, uh, I think I may have predicted all of this and, but, um, you know, when I was at Qbert, uh, when I first got there, you know, you get all excited. It's, it's 10 classes. So it's, you're, you're just drawing every day, all day. And you get there and you're like, Oh, I'm gonna draw the X-Men. I'm gonna draw Spider-Man. I'm gonna draw Batman. You know, And then, uh, at a certain point, 10 classes, you're like, I got to come up with a project or something, or I'm going to run out of things to things to draw here. So that's really where Forever Winter kind of started. That was like the origin where I was like, oh, this would be kind of a, a neat story, post-apocalyptic. And I remember I drew the main character, James, for one assignment. And it was just him like walking out in the snow with the swords on his back and, uh, I was like, what's the story? There's something here. There's, there's definitely a story here. So that is, and then for each assignment, I would start to add in more characters and, and kind of, that's how it really started to develop. It wasn't me predicting the horrible last six years we've all survived. (laughs) (laughs) So it was just a workshop experiment. You know, you were just trying to like, you know, create something that you felt was going to continue instead of simply completing an assignment for a class and then, you know, oh, I do it again, but they're all independent. None of them, you know, would have any sort of synchronicity or um, continuation until you started with James. Did James, you know, while you were drawing him, were you you thinking of something? Was it, hey, I just want to capture this character, this idea of a character, you know, also because you later, you know, made some changes by 2009. So what was James like when you first drew him? Uh, I think it was this assignment needs to be done by uh, Tuesday morning. Let me get in here if I don't get this thing. But uh, it was after that. I was like, oh, you know, this is kind of neat. Like, what is this guy looking for? So it was it was just him like walking out in the snow. And I was like, well, what's he looking for? And then the next assignment, I drew like a guy in a bombed out church and the snow coming through. And I was like, oh, he's looking for this guy. Well, why is he looking for, you know, this guy? And um, then I came up with the, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the sort of very simple story of, oh, he, he murdered his father and it's like a revenge tale. And, um, you know, he's always been kind of, I would say he's, he's been pretty consistent. He's probably the more consistent characters in, from the earliest days. A lot of people have, have changed and gone directions, um, that I did not expect when I first created them, but with his goal being so, um, important to the story and central to the story I thought that he's always just kind of been this lone gunman or lone gunslinger in a in a western he's he's the man with no name you know from Sergio Leone basically um out there <laughs> I, I'd love to know sort of you know you're talking about Kubert school I've I've heard amazing stuff there's a Taylor Esposito is a really fun letter I follow and um, I, I, I love getting his feedback on what it's like being both a working letterer as well as an instructor at Qbert. And I'm always curious too, what, what leads to getting into Qbert? You know, was it a flash in the pan? Did you suddenly pick up drawing at a particular time in life or has it always been with you? I mean, I love talking with the artists where they're like, yeah, man, I don't know, I was 16, I was bored, I picked up a pencil 
And then you got the other ones who are like, yeah, I was five. I was stapling paperly together and saying, this is my comic. This is my book. Like, you know, there's always a, a different introduction. Where was yours? Yeah, that, that was me. Um, I have, I have <laughs> comic books that I made when I was five years old that my mom still has. You know, my mom was my first letterer because I, I don't think I could write yet when I was making up these crazy stories. And I mean, I went, um, I did like classes when I was a kid. It's always been part of my life. And I actually went to, um, I went to a trade high school where I studied uh, commercial art. And then, yeah, so it was a trade school. So it was, it was two weeks of shop, which was commercial art and then two weeks of academics and you'd, you'd flip back and forth. And I actually, there, I met Joe Daxberger, who letters Forever Winner. I met uh, Tony Sedani, who did one of the backup stories in there. We've been friends now for like 25, 26 years, which is, wow. is crazy. Uh, so then I, from there, I went to community college. And uh, Hubert had always been my dream school ever since I read about it in Wizard Magazine back when magazines were a thing. Uh, kids out there magazines are like uh small books that used to come out monthly and you had to kind of glossy they had kind of glossy beautiful Uh, colors yeah it's kind of like if twitter was uh less horrible and was printed (laughs) and mostly one way (laughs) yeah yeah yes absolutely and yeah so i i was wrapping up at community college and i i kind of i always one of the schools i had considered going to was like mass art in boston and, uh, you know, I, I said, if you go to Mass Art, you're going to do a lot of the same things you've been doing so far. Or you can finally apply to Kubert. Because I was very scared to apply to Kubert because they used to talk about how hard it was to get in and how few people made it into the school. So I was always very intimidated by that. But I was like, you got to at least you got to at least try to get in there because that's where I'd, I had always wanted to go. And, um, you know, I, I applied and I, I may ended up going in and I remember I, uh, I, I applied, I got accepted and I went for a, a tour of the school. And I just remember being out there going around and just seeing like, yeah, this is definitely where I have to go. This is where I need to be. And I'll never forget. I was sitting, uh, I was sitting eating Chinese food in the, front seat of my parents car my dad had driven me down there for the uh the tour and uh adam kubert like walked by and went into the art store and i was like oh my god i i have to go here like adam, <laughs> Kubert, adam kubert just went into the art store it's like such a, a weird thing i could be in there we could bump into each other who knows what could happen i mean yeah, yeah he ended up a- uh you know a couple months later he was teaching me narrative art first year which was just a a trip for a kid who grew up on 90s x-men comics to (laughs) sit i remember we were in class one day and he's like oh yeah i got those uh uh i think it's like wolverine 92 the one right before age of apocalypse with all like the splash pages the the double page he's like yeah he ran down to his studio and brought it up there and brought it into class and you're just like what (laughs) <laughs> like, that was worth first year tuition alone just to like look at that thing <laughs> how hard was it you, you mentioned that that was like you know taking a, a big leap you know you you finally sort of came to that point where you're like all right I'm, I'm gonna take the leap I can you know really pursue this thing you know one is 
kind of a guarantee. You've already got trade school experience in commercial design. You have an understanding of what the expectation is. You go through UMass, you're going to come out. People are going to be picking you up. You're going to have a, a, a probably a pretty solid career. You know, you look around and there's a lot of great opportunities for commercializing art or using yeah. art for commercial purposes. But when you make the choice to go to Qbert, how hard was it compared to what you believed it was going to be? And then also, uh, were there any surprises like, hey, it could be hard, but it's doable. Or, you know, once you break this all down, you know, it's just about meeting all the requirements. Or was it more of like, I don't even know how good I am. I'm just giving you this to and lighting a candle, maybe foldings, maybe sacrificing an animal, whatever. Get me in. <laughs> um, I mean, getting there, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, it's 10 classes. I remember being in community college and my advisor, student advisor saying, don't take more than five classes. It's too much of a, a, a class load. You, you'll cave under the pressure. And then you get to Qbert and it's 10 classes a week. It's two a day all week. And you are drawing your ass off. And, uh, uh, but for me, I, I, um, I mean, I wasn't the best person in our class, I don't think, I, but I, I worked hard. I, um, I always got my work in on time. I made sure to, you know, really focus on, on what I was doing uh, a lot of the time I was there. But uh, it was about, it was what I expected, I think, for the most part. Um, okay. Luckily, luckily the, the group of guys I, I went to school with were all very cool and uh, definitely helped me out a lot. Uh, even with a lot of them, guys I hadn't talked to in, in years came out of the woodwork to help fund Forever Winter. So it, it really always meant a lot to me to go to that school. And I know like some dudes who went there, like, don't talk that nicely about it or they want to make it seem like they were all self-taught. I think that's like a big thing. Like some dudes, they don't want to admit they went to Qbert school or they don't want to admit they went to art school that they were, you know, that this is just some easy thing that they do. But uh, I've always been very proud of my time there and, and to be a QB and, and all that stuff. Is there one thing that you sort of, you know, identify as being the, the uh, key growth or the biggest takeaway from your time there or uh, something similar to that? That's like, hey, this is what I came out of Qbert with that I didn't have before I went in there. One specific thing. I mean, I learned a, I learned a lot there. And then I'll take them. I'll take as many as you feel comfortable sharing. I try and just give her like, Hey, what's one or two, because it, you know, but if you're ready, please, you know, whatever you got, <laughs> what, what did you take away? You know, I'll take a laundry list. <laughs> um, I, you know, you gotta, you gotta learn the basics. And I think the school does a really good job of doing that. And I think you have to realize that you're going, you're gonna have to put in the work. I remember being a younger artist and not wanting to do perspective and thinking like, I'll just fake this in. No one, no one's gonna really notice. And then it's like, I'd spend more time trying to hide bad perspective than just <laughs> doing perspective, you know? And you, you, you gotta just, you gotta be willing to, to grind it out. You gotta, you gotta be willing to work hard. And I think the school teaches you that. And, a lot of dudes don't make it through a lot of, I remember a dude outside 
because it's very intimidating when you're in, all of a sudden in a group of artists. And I remember a dude talking all this trash like on the front steps about how good he was. And then he didn't come back from lunch on the first day. And I just, he was just gone. I don't even remember the dude's name. Like he, mm-hmm. uh, he never came back. So the Cubit School is kind of like, be careful what you wish for, because if you want to draw comics, here's your seat, here's your pencil, uh, get to work. Right. And, yeah, I'm reminded of that great phrase, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, skill, and skill will get you so far, but you still need to work hard, I think, to, to make this happen. Yeah, I went through a writing program where I remember a teacher was really clear and he was like, hey, you're going to see that cool group. They're going to be fun. They're going to have the best parties. They're going to, you know, they're going to be that group you want to be a part of. But if they're not putting in the work you're putting in, ask yourself what that time spent with them means to you. You know, it's it's just going to happen. There's going to be there's going to be a cool group and there's going to be a group that you don't see because they're busy putting in the work. So just keep that in mind, you know, how you spend your time here. And that really stuck with me, this idea of like, yeah, there were people that intrigued me, but getting to know them wasn't as important as the work I had to turn in on such and such a day or when it came down to, uh, you know, complete an assignment or for me, always the kicker was the workshop. You know, you, you create something, you put it up and then the rest of the class comes around and goes, okay, we're going to tell you what we think. And at that moment, you know, if you didn't put in the work, it, it shows. I'm reminded of that, that horrible phrase by bosses that I've heard far too often, either directed at me or somebody else. Laziness will only make you work twice as hard. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you, uh, you, you get into Cuber. You've, you've been fulfilling this sort of childhood dream into high school. You've taken the big leap. You get there. You realize how much work it is. You meet the work head on. And then by the end of it, you're coming out and Forever Winter by now has been slowly evolving, you know, from the point when it started with James Holden to uh, the time of graduation. What was the process of evolution from when you graduated to um, 2011 when we've got this great intro from Carl to the book that I'm holding or that the digital copy I got, the book that I ordered from you that I'll be holding in my hand. The book is on its way. It should be there. uh, Not worried about that. That's not a, (laughs) that wasn't a postage question. It's more about the idea that we were talking about things from 2006 to 2009, 2011 to now. And that's an interesting uh, process. And I can imagine there's a couple of um, significant moments that occur during those timeframes. So when I got out of school, so important thing to note about Cubert School is there's like this infectious sort of energy and magic to that school where it's like you, anything can happen. So you'd be like 400 page original, you know, fully painted graphic novel, no problem, let's do it. And then you get out of school and student loans kick in and you got to find a, a day job and, and all that other stuff. And then all, of a, all of a sudden it's very, very realistic. So I remember thinking, I cannot afford to print books right now with student loans and everything. And I was like, so I'm going to do Forever Winter as a digital comic. In the mid-2000s, digital comics were huge. We were all spending way more time online with the emergence of social media. And people were looking for content. So a lot of things were like web comics, web comics, web comics. So I said, I'm going to do Forever Winter as a web comic. That way I don't have to pay for printing. And then the only problem with that is comic books are different from web comics and web comics are different from comic books. The pacing of a web comic is very different 
than to turn the page. If you're uploading one or two pages a week, it's like every page almost has to be its own thing while it's part of this bigger thing. So Forever Winter was completely wrong for webcomic. And, you know, once I burned through the pages I already had, then it's like, then I'm rushing to get pages done. So I, at a certain point, I said, this is not going to work in this format. I have to go, this is meant to be a comic book and I have to go back. And that is when I, one of the, you know, I went back and started to rewrite the book as a comic book, the way it was supposed to be with everything I had, you know, intended to, to do as I had developed it more and more between 2006 and 2009, that was, that was really a big catalyst for it. And then you go back, you rework the beginning, you bring this thing to completion. What was that time frame like, you know, from when you had done the original webcomic, then when you went to rewriting it so that it would be this physical comic book that you were um, constructing? What was it, what was the sort of time frame to, to get it completed and then turn around and start trying to get it to the public? It was probably about two years, I think. So probably um, uh, in 2010, we started Stockpile Comics. It was me, Ryan Miller, who I went to Kubert School with, uh, Jacob Rhodes, who I went to Kubert School with, and Jesse, who I went to Kubert School with. And we had all had individual ideas. And we wanted to do an anthology book because a lot of, you, see, you even see it still today that a lot of people starting out, it's easier to do an anthology book. It's not easy, but it's easier if you have multiple creators in on like one project, you can split costs, you can you do that thing. And uh, so we were going to do Stockpile Comics as an anthology book with all of our creator owned. And um, uh, a new website was coming out called Kickstarter that uh, we didn't really know much about. It was very new at the time. It seemed like a, a crazy notion that somebody would give us money for that. But uh, what is this madness? Yeah, what is this madness? I remember reading on like comic book resources about Kickstarter. I'm like, oh, that's a very interesting idea. Um, we ultimately decided not to do the anthology book, but we all launched our individual titles. French Bulldog. <laughs> yeah, that's Bruno. I've got, I've got you, to you myself. You, you might have seen me holding him on my lap for a second. He, he gets very jealous when I'm talking to anyone other than him. So I at times, I, you're familiar. <laughs> I have two French bulldogs. I know. I know how jealous they are. They uh, <laughs> they're not big fans of when I work. <laughs> no, no. I I've actually learned that there's a way that I can set a sort of lap desk with my laptop on the couch with him lying between my legs, and then lay that across the top, and that can really suffice. Hey, buddy, yeah. do you want to be part of the thing? Come here. He'll come say hi in a second. <laughs> All right. So right now he's going to whine at me to come over and pick him up because, you know, he's there. Like, yeah, well, I know. <laughs> what are the names of your French Bulldogs? Uh, Gracie and Madison. Uh, Gracie and females. Madison. Wonderful. Yeah. He's a male. That's Bruno. He oh, is Bruno. the king of this house. Yeah. Absolutely. I always pictured the, uh, the, the dogs playing poker. And the one with the derby smoking, and and that was that was how I came up with the name. Yeah, my wife had another name, and she put it to a vote with her clients. I won with Bruno. Nothing you can do about that. And now and it's an Encanto and all sorts of other fun stuff. So I just laugh. Like seriously, I had no idea what I was starting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're great. They're a great dog. Uh, oh. they're the best. 
Yeah, phenomenal. I've got a female pit bull and it's it's like he just loves, I mean, I've noticed this with a lot of French bulldogs, they love big dogs that they can kind of just jump on and, you yeah. know, kind of roughhouse with. <laughs> yeah, my uh, Gracie loved, loved to wrestle a, uh, a lab, jump up and grab it by its head and they tumble around. My brother, my brother and his wife, um, uh, my wife, uh, my sister-in-law is a, is a vet tech. So they, they like dog sit and, uh, bring, bring the French bulldogs over there to chase the dog around to tire it up. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good idea. Yeah. So as you can see, Bruno likes to be part of these things. It's never a guarantee. I can pick him up and start one out. Nothing. And then I can be in the middle of recording an intro for something. And he's like, Oh, and I'm like, okay, (laughs) pick him up. Hey, everybody, Bruno is a part of this thing today. And I've learned my life, my podcast will always feature this kind of snarbling, snoring sound in the background. And it's the soundtrack of life, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, you get used to it. You miss it when it's not around. Where are those two? What are they up to? Exactly. Come on now. Not around when I need you. Always need me when I'm busy. But <laughs> uh, so stockpile comics. Uh, Bruno, yep. you, you did your best to distract us, my friend, but we're going to stay on track. With, uh, with Stockpile, you know, an interesting idea, and, and I can relate to the anthology. I'm actually, I'm part of one right now that's in the you know, process of being created. And that was the argument that was pitched to me. It's like, hey, we know you're working on some independent stuff, but we want to do an anthology. We feel it can offer us all exposure, easy way to fill content, also a great offering because people aren't committed to one type of storytelling. You have a variety contained within and you can find your favorites, but you broke up that idea instead and then turned it into everyone, you know, launching their own individual projects on Kickstarter. Uh, did, did that change the sort of shape of stockpile as you had originally created it, but did it then offer some opportunity as well? Uh, what was that sort of influence like? Because stockpile was one thing and then Kickstarter and the anthology and things sort of changed at that point. We, um, it wasn't like uh, we didn't, plan that much for the anthology okay as you as you know with anthologies there's a lot of moving pieces and it's it's really hard and indie comics is really hard to get you know to get all the stories done at the same time would have been really hard so i was probably further along than most people okay uh, in the group because i had already started so it wouldn't i didn't want to wait so i mean there was no hard feelings or anything everybody just ultimately thought that it was the better way to go Sure. And like I said, Kickstarter was still new. I don't think we really could wrap our heads around what that meant as of yet. And I don't know how successful we would have been. Nobody really knew who we were or or anything when we were starting out. So I think the way we went about it was the better way to go about it. It sounds pretty organic. You know, it seems like just one of those things where it's like the more you look at it, you look at what you have, you look at what your best options are. And, you know, you're, you're simply trying to get to that finish line. You're like, look, I got this thing. I know I want to get there. Where are we? You know, and if, if others are kind of also saying like, Hey, I'm not where you're at, get up there, man, do your thing. We'll catch up later. Everybody's on their own sort of timeline, which I think can be a really helpful, responsible way to, you know, ask yourself, Hey, we had an idea. This is where we are with it now what's changed and how do we need to adapt if we're going to survive? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it worked out well. yeah, it sounds, uh, you know, I mean, it sounds like a really 
auspicious time for you guys to have Kickstarter launching as you're looking at this idea and then turn around and sort of be like, okay, we're here at the beginning of this thing. We're not even sure what it really means yet, but at least yeah. we're here with the opportunity to try and do something with it. Um, so that's pretty fortuitous. I, I'm really intrigued. I'm curious because he's in the intro and by now I feel like it might be getting close to him. Um, Carl totally like, I went forevermore falls. I, I totally, you know, I was like, oh yeah, dude, you got me. You've got a story contained in a book about all the tropes that I'm going to get into. He was definitely yeah. like, hey man, do you love the 80s? Do you love Goonies? Do you love great stories about fun? And you know, it doesn't have to be too serious. It can just be a great time. So that was my introduction to Carl uh, through our interview and then his book. But then I'm reading the introduction and this idea that he expresses that you're offering in Forever Winter, you know, this this story where it's like, hey, look, um, we know what you're used to. And now we're going to tell you something that's a little bit closer to a real story. Nobody's perfect. Everybody's doing their best to get by. They've got motives. And yet at the same time, they're as human as you and I are. You know, there's moments when we're like, I'm going to do all this great stuff. And halfway through, we're like, okay, so today I'm going to do this much. Tomorrow <laughs> I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to do whatever is possible compared to what I want. And I'm also going to sometimes have to partner with people that maybe I didn't expect to, maybe I didn't want to, maybe create, you know, different complications. But that introduction to me was was a lot of fun. How did you meet Carl and your relationship turn into uh, him being such a you know strong supporter of Forever Winner? Uh, we were we were classmates, uh, second at, year and third year at at Kubert. Okay, and. Um, you know, there was a lot of guys at school that wanted to break into the industry, right? They only wanted to do, uh, you know, Marvel, DC, Big Two stuff. And me and Carl kind of latched onto each other pretty early because we both wanted to do our own thing. And um, and Ryan Miller, too. Uh, you know, the guys I ended up forming Stockpile Comics with were the same way. We were the dudes, hey, if we could break in, that'd be that'd be fantastic. But if not, we'd still love to do like our own, our own stories. And, um, you know, me and Carl, me and Carl used to go for pizza at lunch. We'd go to this place, MS two in, uh, in Dover, New Jersey to give them a plug. And we, <laughs> we would just, we would just like pitch to each other, like things, Oh, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. And, and he would do it for me. And we would listen to each other's like outlines and stuff all the time. And when I got out of school, when I was doing it as a webcom, when I was doing it as a webcomic, I said, well, I want to, I want to test the waters and I want to print something. So I wanted to do a book with three short stories. The three short stories being the one that Carl did that's in the book now, the original version of Before You Say Goodbye, and one other story that I can't remember. Um, and I ended up not printing it because at a certain, but Carl Carl agreed to do the backup story and he's done pinups and he's just, he's just, I mean, you talk to him for X amount of time and you just know, he's just like the best dude. And he's so passionate. And uh, if everybody treated comics the way Carl Slominski does, the industry be in a much better, much better place, I think. Cause uh, he just, he cares more than anybody I've ever met, including myself. That's a very apt description. I, I completely agree. I mean, the guy's pretty infectious. You get talking to him, you know, about five minutes into our chat. I was like, Carl, we're going to have a great time. This is going to be kind of ridiculous. Like, let's go. <laughs> so just imagine, just imagine that every day for two years, how, 
like how and how much fun that was just to hang out with that dude and watch him work and and just you know spitball ideas there was no idea that was too ridiculous yeah i mean especially over pizza there's nothing better than sort of taking all this stuff that you've been absorbing while you're in class taking a break from it and then suddenly going okay so remember that thing they were talking about what about this okay we heard about this thing here's this. Hey, I got this idea. And you're just talking shop with somebody else who can, you know, build on your ideas, take them in a different direction completely. And it's that sort of blessing when you're collaborating, you have a perspective, but the other person shows you something you never considered, never would have imagined until they say it. And then you're like, oh, look, look what you just did. You just turned this idea right in my head. Like I picked up a Rubik's cube and flipped it over and went, Oh, there's other colors on the other side. You should see this. It's really, it's really kind of cool. Right. Wow. And now you've opened up huge possibilities. So you and Carl are introduced to Qbert. You know, you have this great plan for one project. It doesn't work out the way, you know, you intended, but eventually, you know, you guys maintain a friendship as he's working on projects like Evermore and Icarus. You're working on Forever Winter. Um but then we get down to the part where, you know, you get from that to funding the Kickstarter that just went through and that has now brought this book to life. What was what was that time period like from 2011 to now? Um, a lot of a lot of hard work, a lot of, um, you know, uh, self-publishing five issues and, uh, uh, you know, a, a one shot of just miniseries. Uh, little short stories a lot of a lot of years uh on the con circuit just trying to get the book out there trying to uh spread the word um a lot of a lot of drawing and uh what was the con circuit like for you to to just sort of like hey you know i mean it, it's a tough thing i remember i'm not sure if you're familiar there's a, a writer who writes about writing named Anne lamont she's got a she's a yeah she writes a great book called bird by bird and she, she, she does a great job describing sort of like what it's like for her to be a writer. But she does this great example of what it means to share your work with others. And she has a child named Sam. And she goes, yeah, when somebody says something bad about my writing, it's like somebody just called Sam ugly. You know, it's just this horrible moment where you're just like, but that's my baby. I brought this thing to life. I gave it yeah. blood, sweat and tears. You know, it's 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 a dream. I, I am giving it as a gift to you, you know, to the world and the world is not always kind. Why won't you accept my gifts? Why won't right. you accept my gift? Why don't you see how beautiful my gift is? Why don't you want me? Love me. Yeah. That flashes me back to an old Star Trek, the next generation episode, but love me, love me. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you take this on the con. What, what was that experience like for you? Because a lot of these questions I'm asking, there's people that are going to be listening and, and, watching depending on their favorite and these ideas can sometimes seem so broad i mean art and writing can be like this yeah horizon and Kubert school can seem so i'm i'm always lucky when i get the chance to ask the questions because i never know how much of the mystery you and i can unlock for them where it's like yeah it's mysterious but you can demystify if you listen to people that have been there if you understand what they're telling you if you keep that in mind you know this this sort of like it's it's the unknown right i gotta walk out into this thing how do i do this well here here's somebody who's actually been to a place that you might want to go and 
yeah, there might be some challenges and risks, but listen to somebody's experience and consider what that means for you. Mm -hmm. um, I would say as far as cons go, I would, uh, you know, it's, it varies from show to show, depending what kind of show it is. And, uh, you know, it's really hard to predict what you're going to run into. I'm very right. lucky. I get to, I get to table with like my five best friends. <laughs> so like, you know, for me, it's, selling books is is just icing on the cake just getting to hang out with with my friends and and really just be fully into comics for a weekend is, is worth the price of admission alone um if you're starting out in indie comics uh small press expo smaller local shows are going to be better uh, fit for you i've sold way more comics at mice massachusetts independent comic expo than i ever have at a at a bigger show um bigger shows are expensive people don't have as much disposable income to to spend on somebody like me you know when it costs 50 something dollars to get in to a, a con for a day and food and parking and by the time you know forever winter is pretty low on the uh the things to spend money on when you got two kids and you know it's it's tough so you have to you have to know like what you're getting into more mainstream show a lot of celebrities is probably not going to make a ton of money maybe you will um you have to you have to learn you know prints are very you see you'll see like a lot of booths that sell prints because prints are cheap they're 15 cents a you charge 10 bucks it's all profit you know you have to you learn the little things to survive at cons but even even knowing 10 years in even knowing i'm doing a con in a couple of weeks i have no idea what to expect you know it's like you you can only prepare yourself so much you just gotta you just gotta get out there i guess and, and get behind the table and, and hope for the best Understood. Yeah, I would imagine. I, I think for anyone listening, probably the the takeaways to keep in mind are that you know you know you're going into an environment that is going to be based on a number of factors, and one is size. And I mean, the bigger an event is, the more likelihood that there's going to be those big name celebrities. I mean, yeah, we all get inspired by somebody. Those are the people we're writing to that we're saying look what you made me want to do. And now I wrote stories that are, you know, trying to answer what you inspired from me. But getting to that same level takes time, takes exposure, takes experience, takes an investment, you know. A little bit and, of luck too, you know. You, need, <laughs> you know? Certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. You need somebody and, to see you at the, at the right time. And, <laughs> and, but they can't see you if you're not there. So you got you to gotta be out there. You got to pay your dues, basically. Yeah. And just sort of know, you know, what you're getting out of it. If you're at a smaller one, yeah, you're going to have a greater uh, interaction. If it's less money for people uh, to uh, spend to actually get inside and enjoy themselves, then what they can spend their money on when they're inside is more likely something you're offering. I mean, you also get the chance to, uh, as you said, you know, not be, I mean, essentially, if there's 150 to 250 booths, a lot harder to have interactions with people when there's maybe only 20 30 you know and you get a chance to say hey look come sit down for a minute you don't have to try and catch everybody you can actually engage with each group there and that, that's exactly why 
that's exactly why a lot of the times I prefer the smaller shows. We do a small show in, in Portland, Maine, me and uh, Joe Daxberger. We've done it a, a, a bunch of times. And I think admission is $5. It's in, nice. it's in like a, the show floor is literally a basketball court for like a, a minor league Celtics affiliate called the Red Claws. You know, they push the, they push the bleachers out and that's like your con floor. And I've had good weekends up there and I've had weekends where I don't make as much money, but I get to talk to people. People will talk to me about my project and that, you know, even if they don't buy it, it's, it's always nice just to hear somebody say, Oh, it looks cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, yeah. mice is the same thing. Uh, mice I think is free. It's in like a, it's in like a college hallways of a college. It's very small, but you get people off the street who are just like, I don't even read comics, but this seemed like a cool place to be this afternoon. And uh, what, you know, so it's all, it's all different. It doesn't necessarily, you know, if you make it into New York Comic Con, there's going to be a ton of people there, but what percentage of those people are going to stop at your booth? One out of 250 people, you know? So right. Um, you got to, there's a lot of factors that you can't really plan for. And I would imagine that with each experience, you know, you learn a little something new, you consider something that you might want to, you know, keep in mind the next time around. Uh, yeah, whether you see it's something that somebody else is doing and you're like, oh, that's that that banner, that that banner setup is really interesting. Well, maybe we could do that or maybe the, the handouts or, you know, we've printed uh, preview books and handed them out and tried to get people to the table. You know, it's like you learn as as you go. And um, you're going to have to find out what works for you because what works for me might not work for somebody else. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, play to your strengths, right? See, see what others are doing, see how they fit into, you know, what you can do too, because there, there's stuff that people can do where you're like, wow, that's great that they can do that. But if I wanted to do that, I'm going to have to spend this much just to even get something like that created. You know, it, it, yeah. is it worth it for the time and money? compared to what I know I, I do well and plays better to my strengths. Um, I'm, I'm curious as I'm thinking about it too. Uh, we mentioned James Holden, but I, I wanna keep in mind the fact that in Forever Winter, we have a few other characters that I feel would be really fun for us to come back around to. And I enjoy bouncing okay. around. It's a fun thing for me. Uh, <laughs> so Let's do it. One, one of the fun things I got was you, you started out this project with James Holden being adorable okay. because wi-fi yeah, is adorable yeah well for a minute there was i thought you were hearing it too and i'm like is he turning his head is it because of what i'm saying or there's a sound so you mentioned james but along the way we also get introduced to walter and abby i was wondering if you could tell us about you know their evolution in the story but also a little bit about how they fit in forever winter for someone who's just hearing about the concept now from us they know it's post-apocalyptic we know we've got james who's lost his father and he's on a mission but Walter and Abby, they, they have a different story, too, that's part of this narrative, but, you know, it's not directly tied to James. Yep. Um, Walter and Abby are a father and daughter, and um, they're kind of on, uh, we, we are introduced to them, they're on their way to uh, a transport, which is supposed to be leaving from Maine to find unaffected uh, land, uh, as you probably figured out from the title forever winter the it's constantly winter and these two find themselves on an adventure to hopefully find some non-winter uh, uh land 
they were um, they were created pretty early in the process because I knew as soon as I started expanding it, I was like, there has to be more story than than just the revenge. We're we're gonna have to introduce new characters and we're gonna have to meet these other people. And if if this was real, there would be all sorts of people on different journeys throughout throughout the world that he could interact with. And um, you know, James is as we've discussed, is very angry at the beginning of the book. He's on this mission and uh, he meets Abby and Walter. And I think under different circumstances, he'd want to go with them. He sees this, this sort of adventure um, that they're on. And he's like, oh, that's, that sounds fascinating. If I didn't have all this murder to get to, uh, I think I would, would want to do that instead. I think he's seen a lot of, of, you know, he's on the trail of a serial killer and he's he's seen a lot of horrible things the last couple months. And these are the first two characters he meets where he's like, he sees good, he sees good in them. He even, there's even a line in the book where he says, I don't know if you know, but you know, you're not supposed to be nice anymore. Or so, there's something like that. I should know what I wrote, but I wrote that a long time ago. I know exactly the line you're talking about. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, he's giving the hug. He's, he's, this is the moment when they're separating from each other. And he's saying, look, I don't know if you've heard, but the world is not as nice or kind yeah. or, you know, people don't treat each other the way you treated me. It, it'd probably be better if we had more like you out there. It, it actually reminds me a little bit about what you were saying about Carl in the comics industry. I feel like that's what James is saying to uh, Walter and Abby, you know, yeah, we have a, we have some hope in the world if it's you two. And it, it, it makes sense to me that they would be the two who are so hopeful that they see this idea of a transport of seeking out unaffected worlds as as being something that they would believe in they they carry that kind of hope they're they're almost like a beacon and their relationship uh father and daughter i mean i think any parent child uh dynamic cormac mccarthy on the road or sorry the road you know that that great idea amazing, of, amazing book right beautiful story and and it's that that knowledge for anyone once they reach a certain age that there is a responsibility in the mind of any parent when it comes to their child leave you know the moment before you're gone knowing that they have a better future ahead of them than the one that that you had or the one that they came into the world having and it's interesting that in this story it's not like the cataclysm just happened this is 30 years after 30 plus you know, years 30 plus years after a, a tragic event that this is a defined world at this time in the eyes of most of the people who've grown up in it. So the idea of Walter and Abby, I think one is a great character dynamic, two, a great interaction for James, and also three, a, a great narrative thread to follow for people enjoying the story because you know, James is about revenge and, and that can carry a certain emotional tone, but it's balanced by this unimaginable hope, you know, by Walter and Abby, yeah. this idea of a, of a promise, you know? And, <laughs> we're all thinking about that. Like, wow, wouldn't it be, you know, there's things we hope and we dream for too. You know, there's things we aspire right. to. There's, there's promises we want to come true. Um, and our belief in them, our pursuit of them, you know, it's so often the thing that drives us. Right. Right. And um, you know, with, with Walter, like you said, most of the characters, this is the only world they've ever known. This, this is just how life is for them. But for Walter, he's, he's older. He remembers the old world and he does not want to accept that this is the way the only way that things can be and i really like that that element of the story 
where it's like we can be better than this we can we can rebuild or you know we can we can start a start again if we're brave enough to to go out and find to find it yeah i'm uh, i'm encouraged i love the I, I love that way that that parents in stories can offer that for their children you know that they can suggest like look <laughs> you don't know anything more than what you've experienced but i've experienced a little bit more and i i i know and i believe and that's what i'm offering to you my knowledge and and the possibility that 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 can potentially offer for you um i think it's one of those things that is a really powerful component and i, I think it does a wonderful thing for your story so i was really you know please that that I could consider like, hey, I know we can talk about James a lot, but I want to talk about Walter and Abby. And then I want to talk about another component that I feel really offers uh, a great tone and and something that's not hard to see. I recently watched, uh, was it Raised by Wolves? And there I saw mm -hmm. a religious concept that was introduced in a very intriguing idea. So when I talk about the children of August, where did they come into the, the process of the story? And um, tell us a little bit about them for those who are just hearing about Forever Winter, because now we know we've got James on Revenge. We've got Walter and Abby, a father and daughter, you know, seeking out promise. But the children of August have a very different mission in mind altogether. Um, so when I, the earliest version of Forever Winter, I always wanted there to be a group that James would come up against. And being a young man, I thought, what if it was the 10 best swordsmen that, that were alive in the world? You know, very, very simple concept. And as I started to rewatch it, as I started to rewrite it, I saw a documentary called Witness to Jonestown. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's about P People's Temple. Um, and it's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking documentary. If you don't know about People's Temple, it's... Uh, Jim Jones and his group of followers went down to South America and built a compound to live. And uh, with a, uh, the family members were worried about him. They, a US Senator went down to investigate. The Senator ended up killed and they uh, committed mass suicide. And I said, you know, it's scary when a dude has a sword, but when a dude has an army of people that have swords, that's way scary. And I said, Jim Jones is the, the villain of that I've been looking for in Forever Winter. And that was the that was the earliest like concept of that. I wanted to to have a religious cult. And if you if you do enough research on any cult, it, it always ends very badly. Um, I'm not saying it's it's not saying it's going to, but they're all heartbreaking, heartbreaking stories. They are. Uh, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Jim Jones is yeah. um, part of the fabric. You know, you you can't talk about cults without understanding how much he changed the landscape here uh, in yeah. the Bay Area for a lot of people. I mean, it it's so interesting how many different layers there are in a place as condensely packed as here and how many different facets of life that that experience touched it it really changed so much afterwards. Like you you couldn't think about faith, belief, yeah. or programs that, that offer it in the same way anymore because you knew that possibility was out there. Once that event occurred, it, it really changed. And 
I was moved by that example because I've also been lucky enough to, I interviewed a gentleman who's a writer and he was in a cult. He described his experience. This was in the uh, 70s, late 60s, 70s, actually. And he had come out of school, got into this cult. And it turned out the uh, the main guy uh, modeled himself after the lead singer of some 60s rock band and was stealing everybody's money. And the whole purpose of the cult was to fund his rock band because he saw himself as a... Uh, you know, some sort of like guy who could, who could do all this. And it was tragic. The guy who I interviewed, he ended up getting literally beat down in a bar and thrown out in 20 degree weather and told you're out of the cult now, you know, you dared to question anything about my authority. And that led him to becoming (laughs) a resident of California and then a freelance writer himself. And this was this like wild evolution, but Yes, when it comes to cults, it's it's something that, that people want to believe in. It offers protection. It offers security. They're building a new world when uh, Forever Winter yeah. opens with them. They're, they're offering this community. And yet at the same time, um, there's terms with that community. You know, if, if you want to live there, you must abide by certain things. There's expectations. There's rules. And you surrender a certain part of yourself towards that collective when you make that. Um, so I thought it was a really interesting idea to offer because at some point people are going to seek those things. You, the structure of the world around them has fallen apart. They're going to look for comfort, security, safety, uh, much as Walter and Abby can see that, that transport as being the future for them. Others have seen the children of August as being like, hey, that sounds too fanciful. This is real. This is right in front of me. This is something that I can be a part of right now. And it's offering that immediate return, food, shelter, you know, a sense of belonging. Community, those are all, community. yeah, those are all very appealing ideas, you know, when otherwise it's just you and the next guy or the next person. And uh, <laughs> you're just fighting against each other for whatever limited resources are left. Yeah, that was, you know, um, if you watch, I mean, I don't watch them because they bum me out, but like Doomsday Preppers and and like the shows about those people is... Mm-hmm. It's kind of played, you know, it's almost played like the jokes on them. But my thought process was if you had a, a survivalist group, a cult who had all this pre set up and then something did happen, they would go from laughing stock to the most powerful people in the world. And that's really what the children of August are. It's like they, you know, nobody's laughing at them anymore because they're self-sufficient and they they've they were born for this world you know they've prepared for it so that makes them very dangerous definitely it also gives them a power of like prediction of of you know hey these guys saw it all coming they're the only reason that we're able to enjoy what they have is because they were prepared you know this this is clearly the right path um for anyone listening audio i just made air quotes but (laughs) <laughs> right path. <laughs> um, and, and that can be something that can be a, a very strong thing to believe in when, right. you know, everything else that you thought. So here's an interesting thing that this leads me to, because it's a question I've come across recently, and I've been having fun thinking about how I can pose it to artists and creators. Um, in your opinion, do we learn more from quote unquote heroes, quote unquote villains, or in stories or do we 
we get those sort of uh, insights from the characters around them. You know, so often uh, it's Superman versus a bad guy. And it, or it's another story in which you have a very clearly defined hero and you have a very clearly defined villain. And then from that, you know, who are we really taking things from? And I, I, I pose it in this way because I think to myself, look, when it's a young hero emerging, they have to take risks. They have to step outside their comfort zone. They have to take on responsibilities. But later, if they become something of an established hero, they can actually be blind to what they don't pay attention to. And it can be a villain that can rise up and say, I'm the product of what you're not paying attention to. And I'm now something you have to deal with because your perspective, just like all of us, is only limited to what we think is important, what we see is going on, what we're aware of. And depending on the story, I can learn a lot from a hero because of the skills or attributes that they're offering and how they confront a problem. But I can learn as much from a villain who's saying, hey, hero, guess what? You're not paying attention and it's time to open your eyes. And usually it is with something nefarious. And then I had a, an artist recently who said, yeah. And then I like the supporting characters who are busy sort of giving the context to these heroes and villains that are offering that insight. So I said, okay, look, I'm willing to consider that possibility too. But when the question <laughs> first started, it was this idea of who do you feel you learn more from, heroes or villains? So I'm going to pose that, but I'm also going to allow that addition of, but there's supporting characters. I want to talk about them. Do you find yourself, you know, um, when you're engaging with printed material, when you're writing your own characters, are you able to pick up more heroes, villains, supporting characters? Is that ever an experience you have or an insight you would like to, to offer? I don't know if that's really an experience I've, I've ever had, especially with, with my book. It's, it's, it's such a world of gray. There's no, there's no Superman in Forever Winter. It's, it's very difficult. Um, I mean, I think there's a little bit of me in, in all the characters that I create and the, the world I've created. I don't know that I'm so focused on just trying to tell the story. I don't know that I'm, I'm learning lessons until maybe even I read my own work uh, after the fact. That was the reason I wanted to pose the question to you, because this is such a great book. And I found like, OK, this is where this question actually has a, a different context to it completely. Because when I was first thinking of it, it was in, in relationship to those examples that are so one or the other. But even with some of those characters, I'm reminded of the fact that in their own minds, they see themselves as the hero. You know, uh, oh, look yeah. at the yeah. example of Thanos from the, uh, from the, the books and the, and the movies. The guy was very clear. You will have a better future if I do this one horrible act. I, I'm yeah. the hero that you hate. I'm, I'm the thing you need. And that, that belief idea, you know, can offer this idea of like, well, I disagree with the methods, but he is pointing to a problem. It's true. There are not enough resources to go around for everyone the way we're doing things. And yeah. that was an interesting moment that I could use as an example of learning from a villain. But in your book, as you describe, it's not like someone is just this one thing. They're, they're human. These are people yes. who are not clearly defined by any sort of one color spectrum. They, they contain the entire spectrum. They are the entire breadth and width of humanity. And with a question like that, you know, <laughs> for each person reading, I think they're gonna find themselves saying, what am I taking away from these people? You know, what am I learning from each one of them? And you're gonna learn some good and some bad. I mean, for me, uh, when it comes to heroes, sometimes it's like, look, 
you make mistakes and then there's how you deal with them. When it's villains, it's like, look, you make a choice and then you have to accept that there will be you have to deal with the bad consequences. Things. Right. But if you're committed to what your belief in, those things are secondary to whatever that is. For each of these characters, there are mixtures of those elements. You know, they are committed to their ideas, but they're also just as human as the next person. You know, there's what that theory, that idea is face with the reality. It's constantly changing in front of them all the time. And with those grays, um, I wanted to offer that question to you because I felt like it was one of these things where it's like, look, this isn't a cut and dry book, but yet at the same time, I feel that adds as much context to the answer to the question as uh, if you're talking about Superman or Spider-Man, you know, if you're talking about these clearly defined heroes and these clearly defined villains and, and things like that. So I pose the question mostly because I'm curious to see what possibilities can come out of the answer? I want to know, you know, where is it that that we are each of us making our connections? Sometimes heroes, sometimes villains, sometimes characters. Um, in your world, it, there is a lot of gray, and I think from both the heroes and villains, one thing I took away was it's unimaginable to consider who we are until placed in a moment that can be defining for us afterwards, you know, where we will make choices. And each one of them is one of those. Did I have to do that? Did I have it? I mean, these are choices that will leave you questioning afterwards. And I feel that these characters are oftentimes placed in those situations where it isn't a clear right or wrong. There isn't some like great lesson to be learned. There is what you have to do if you're trying to accomplish something. There is what you have to accept when some things are out of your control. Um, and it's a future that I think <laughs> reminds us, you know, no matter how much might change, there are some things that are still very constant, you know, there's yes. what we want and then there's what's happening all around us that dictates what we want and how close we are, or even if we can get it. Um, so <laughs> more often, <laughs> more often than not, I'm, I'm going to offer a question like that, give my own example, but also, uh, be grateful just for uh, offering your insights on that. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next? Forever Winter, it's, it's been funded, it's been uh, distributed. Is there a next thing you're always working on? Is there a, another project you see in the future? What, what can people expect if they've devoured Forever Winter and they're like, Hey, so what you doing? What you, you know, you working on anything new right now? <laughs> uh, the answer is uh, more Forever Winter is on the way. I am um, working on a, a, back here, you can see there's uh, some pages I'm, I'm back peeking. here. I was peeking earlier. Um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a uh, cry one shot later this year that takes place about a year before the main story kicks in. It's going to help set up some stuff for uh, for volume two, and uh, I'm I'm currently writing volume two of the of the book. I'm not quite sure how I want to release it yet. I, uh, I'll probably be back to single issues, but um, it's weird for me now. I'm in a place I I've never been or I haven't been for a very long time. For the longest time, I knew I knew the ending of volume one of Forever Winter from for the last 16 years i knew that's how that book was going to end mm -hmm. and now i it was just building to that moment trying to get to that that moment at the end of that book 
And uh, now I have the ending of volume two. So now it's me coming up with the roadmap to get there. And I know everything that happens, but now I have to, I have to go in and I have to find all the connective tissue and I have to start to put it all together. So in the meantime, I'm, I'm doing this one shot. Um, there wasn't much cry in the last issue. Cry's one of my favorite characters. So I was like, I, you know, I, I, I want to do a, a one shot of, of just her. And uh, so that should be later this year. And then hopefully some volume two. Yeah, I think I think people will enjoy a one shot of cry. I, I think there's a there's a lot of material still available. I think there's a lot of potential that people are going to enjoy. I also, I mean, got a great introduction. You know, I mean, I think nine times out of 10, when you have a character with a dog, there's going to be a part of me that's going to be like, you know, hey, you got me. You know what I mean? I mean, between the dogs that make us better people and also that feeling of like, you know, even in a cold world. <laughs> even in a dark yeah. future right there there are things that we can still create and that companionship between um <laughs> two creatures that care for each other in different ways that's a that's a great thing to always you know and that, that was my dog her. too that uh oh. that dog was my dog so uh she unfortunately we had to put her down uh probably like eight years ago now but uh that's why the dog only ha has the one short ear it's because that uh, we had a Weimariner and uh, she got in a fight with another dog and she ended up having to have surgery on her ear. So that's why the dog has the one shorter ear because that, that was my dog. And, uh, and uh, also immortalized. Now. She yeah, she's, she's in there. She, uh, her name wasn't Z, but uh, uh, that, that was my dog. So it's always funny to, to just draw her. And uh, oh, that should be a great experience too, with the one shot, you know, I mean, um, so You've got the one shot to look forward to. You've got the next part of Forever Winter. And yeah, I, I had to wonder about what that would mean with this idea. You know, it's interesting to think about it in comparison to James. It's interesting to think about it in comparison to the characters of Walter and Abby. You know, this thing that at some point seems like we're going where? <laughs> okay, right? And then there's your journey and then you get there. And then there's the, okay, so that was just the beginning and everyone sort of <laughs> yeah. pauses and goes, wait, there's more. And it's like, oh yeah. You know, now that you're here, now it's about the next steps. And that's gotta be such an interesting sort of experience for you. It's like, I'm finally here. I'm doing what next? You know, you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. finding like, yourself uh, at the summit and then going, so wait, I got to go there now. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's like, all right, here we go again. I always joke. Ooh. I always joke with, uh, with Ryan Miller, who does Mango for Sockball Comics. And I always say, like, I always say, whatever issue I'm on, that it's easy now. It's all, you know, the second one, I was on the second issue, I was like, ah, you know, after you get the first one done, the second one's easy. And after the second one's done, ah, you know, the third one, the third one's where things get really easy. So I, just, yeah, I always tell them. So I guess like the sixth one is when things get easy. I assume <laughs> it has to get easier at some point, right? Right. I'm reminded of a good friend. He was doing a process of spiritual training, and I remember afterwards he received this sort of like you know gift from his teacher and someone goes so what does this mean if you like graduate and he goes no it means i've earned the right to learn more and we sort of <laughs> smiled and went, there you go you know what i mean because those of us who are familiar with the theology and the ideology we're we're understanding like hey this is always a, a growth mindset as far as you're you know considering this process so for him to come out of this next stage and be like yeah this simply means i get to do more <laughs> yeah 
you know, I've, I've, I've got myself to a place where now I can do the next thing. And I think that's got to be a, a great place to be. I mean, much like making that launch into Qbert, much like launching this project, there's the unknown. There's the, how does this all happen? I, I understand what I was doing, but now I have to do this other thing. What's that going to be like? And how you're yeah. choosing to present it. You know, a lot of choices, a lot of possibilities, a lot of unknown. I can imagine a lot of people listening are going to want to keep up with you from this point on. Um, follow Stockpile Comics, maybe get to know, you mm -hmm. know, other creators. How can I, well, let me just say to you, what's the best way that they can keep up with you? I'll do my best to include as much as possible in the liner notes. But, you know, for those who are audiovisual learners, they might be listening to you right now going, just tell me where to go, man. I'm writing it down. I'm recording this. Just how can I keep up with you guys? Uh, you, we're on we're on all the socials. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Joel, J-O-E-L underscore Lolar, L-O-L-A-R. That's my Instagram and my Twitter. Uh, Stockpile Comics is both on. It's just Stockpile Comics. It's on Instagram and, and Twitter. Um, I mean, we're on Tumblr. I don't know if anybody even does Tumblr anymore. But, uh, you know. <laughs> You're in all the places they might go, maybe they don't go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're we're on basically everything except TikTok. We're not uh, we're not dancing out there in the streets. So. <laughs> so. You make me feel better because my moves have not improved, and I simply no. know if I put them up there, they'd be like, "Dude, go away. Someone else needs yes. this space." I don't know. So <laughs> I, I completely understand, but yeah, I'll make sure that they know how to get there um, and where to find you. More importantly, let me just thank you for taking the time to share with us. You know, I, I love meeting with people that are launching projects, but it's only one process. Afterwards, I don't always get to follow up with them and find out. With you, we reversed it. I got the chance to talk with you after your project funded, after we get a chance to talk about like, hey, not only is Forever Winter here, but there's more coming. So you can get your hands on a copy. You can look forward to what's next. You can follow on social media to keep up. Um, I really appreciate it, man. This was a lot of fun for me. Thank you for having me on. I, I had a great time. And I, I was way more stressed during the Kickstarter. So this was probably the better way to do it. It was a <laughs> ball of stress. Uh, and everything's done now. So we're good. And now I can just sit and, and talk about the project, which is always nice. Yeah, Not worry about I mean, going to the post office tomorrow. <laughs> don't get me wrong. There's a chance I might want to, you know, join you for a conversation about a project that is upcoming, perhaps you know, for Forever Winter 2, that would be a great way to sort of tee it off. But we know that the uh, Cry One Shot's coming. And uh, also, I mean, I'm glad I got a chance to have this conversation with you in the less stressful time. And should you be more stressed, you know, when we're doing the Forever Winter 2 buildup, I'll understand. I'll look back on this and be like, hey, he warned me, you know, but it was a really great chat, man. And uh, folks, you've heard all the ways to keep up with him check out Forever Winter. I've got my copy. You should get yours. We could always compare notes later. Um, but I'm also going to hit the end on the record button because this is the part where I like to have a human conversation with someone after we've had a great conversation for everyone else. So <laughs> thank you again, Joel. Thank you.